Hello, listeners. My name is Salman, and welcome to another episode of the LSE Focal Point podcast. Today, I'm excited to be joined by Oliver Harmon. Oliver Harmon is a founding partner of Searchlight Capital, a private equity firm operating across Europe and North America. Since 2010, Searchlight Capital has made investments in over 40 companies in sectors including media, communications, and financial services. Prior to founding Searchlight Capital, Oliver was a partner at KKR in London. He graduated from Brown University with a degree in international relations and history and received his MBA from Harvard Business School. Oliver, how are you doing today? Thank you. I'm good. <laughs> so to kick things off, for those who might not know, could you tell us a bit more about Searchlight Capital? Yeah, Searchlight Capital is a private equity firm that we started in just about 10 years ago. And Searchlight now manages close to $10 billion, most of it in private equity. We've had funds. Our first fund was around $860 million. The second one was $2 billion. The current one's $3.5 billion. So we've had, you know, really good growth in terms of funds. And we also, four years, started a debt business. So we also have about, you know, a billion dollars uh, or a little bit more in our debt fund. And, and then we also have a lot of co-investments in, across all of our various investments that we manage for investors. I would say what's different about Searchlight is that we started off being transatlantic. So we really believe that there's benefit in being in a transatlantic firm, looking at trends, both valuation discrepancies, industry trends across Europe and North America. We, we felt that was a real value, value added. And uh, that I think was unique. And we also brought large, what we viewed sort of large scap, sophisticated PE skills. I was at KKR, my co-founder, Eric was at Apollo, but we wanted to bring that skill set into more middle market type companies. So before founding Search Like Capital, you're working at KKR for 12 years and progressed a partner. So I'm curious to know what motivated you to leave such a senior position. Well, it, you know, these things are never rational decisions. I had a great run at KKR. You know, I was very fortunate. When I joined KKR, the firm only had offices in New York and Menlo Park. I was, I'd graduated from Harvard Business School and had been working in a smaller private equity firm for 18 months. And KKR recruited me to come work for them in New York, partially because they thought I was reasonably good at private equity or at least had potential. More importantly, I was European and they had ambitions about maybe starting up a, 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 a European effort. I'm originally German and a German speaker. So funny enough, you know, after I joined within a year, we decided to open a London office. Henry Kravis at the time asked me to, to be one of the three people who moved over to help start the London office. Two more senior Americans, you know, who who obviously were much further advanced in their careers at KKR. So we moved over and started the KKR effort really from scratch. And this was late 98, early 99. And it was, you know, an exciting time. I was probably, when I joined, I was sort of the 21st employee, including Henry and George, you know, at KKR and still a small firm. And, you know, we, we got, you know, it was very scrappy when we got started. We had a temporary office. We started hiring some younger analysts and started looking at investments and then raising capital, hiring people. So I really watched the firm progress from about, you know, 5 billion of assets when I joined to close to 70 billion when I left. And we, we went from about 21 people when I joined investment professionals, you know, over 400 when I left because we expanded into different asset classes. And most importantly, you know, we also went from being a private partner. I, I became a partner in 0405 to a publicly listed entity, which was a tr big transition for the firm, both in terms of on the positive side, obviously 
unlocking capital and also value for shareholders. On the flip side, it also, you know, in some ways, you know, made the whole place a little bit more structured. You know, you had to have more Chinese walls, more compliance, all the usual things that you have with a public company. So, you know, my motivation really was about, you know, we'd gone public. It was about 18 months uh, or so after, after the IPO, a lot of my, my, I had a lot of shares because I got there early, you know, a lot of them were vested. I was still, you know, 40, 41. And, um, you know, I'd been, I'd had a great learning experience and a fantastic time. I was fortunate to have the financial resources to do kind of whatever I wanted to do at that point. And I just thought, you know what, when I'm 50, do I still want to be like a senior guy at KKR, which could be amazing, or do I want to try something else? And I've always had this kind of entrepreneurial bug about, you know, starting a business or being an entrepreneur, you know, proving that you can kind of make it on your own. And so I, I, you know, I started talking to Eric about it. Eric Zinnerhoff, a friend from business school days, had had a similar career at Apollo. And then, you know, we we founded uh, Searchlight together with Errol Yuzumeri, who um, I had known before and who was running uh, the Ontario teachers, uh, pension funds, private equity business. So moving on to more industry specific questions, the returns in private equity, are uh, generated through significant change, whether that's a change in management or perhaps strategy. So how has the COVID-19 pandemic impacted your firm? Well, look, COVID-19 has been, you know, the impact has been broad, you know, I mean, obviously the initial, the initial reaction for all of us in private equity was panic. March through June, 2020, you know, you have a big portfolio of companies, some of which are levered and all of a sudden, you know, the world is turned upside down, demand is drying up. And, you know, we, we, we obviously then went into sort of a crisis mode, like everyone did, where we just immediately focused on, you know, circling the wagons, stopped looking too much at new investments, really focused on the portfolio daily calls with the management teams, looking at ways we can, how much cash do we have? How can we conserve cash? You know, do we need to reduce costs? You know, drawing on bank facilities we might have to make sure we have extra cash on our balance sheets. Contingency planning, how long could this last? How bad could it get? What are our alternatives? And, uh, you know, we went from having, you know, kind of bi-weekly portfolio reviews to almost, you know, daily portfolio reviews. So it became really, really intense. And obviously, you know, we made a lot of changes. And I think, thankfully, we had a pretty robust portfolio. We tend to focus on recurring revenue companies. We don't do much at all in consumer. So on the back of that, I think we're pretty well positioned. I can talk about that a bit later. But, you know, then obviously, as we started realizing the world wasn't going to end, we also started playing some offense. And you know, we have this debt fund. We actually have a trading function and a trading desk. So we actually started making some investments in the debt of companies that we liked and knew to be quite robust that seemed to be trading at quite low values. And already in April, May, June, I think we, with Heinz, we made some good investments on the debt side uh, that have so far, you know, worked out very well as all that's come back close to par. And then on the private equity side, you know, we really didn't get active probably until the summer, you know, like I would say August through 2020 when, you know, there was a lot to do. Companies needed capital, liquidity infusions. You could sometimes do also you know, assume that there's going to be some sort of a COVID rebound and you could make investments that focus onto the COVID rebound. So, you know, that was pretty interesting. So I think if anything, it taught us that we had to continue to always be nimble, 
stay on top of our environment. I think it taught us that, you know, it's hard to play both defense and offense at the same time. So we kind of split our team a little bit of people who are focusing on defense, the portfolio, and some people tasked with playing more offense, just, just easier. Obviously at the founder level, we had to do both, but for the team, I think it, it helped. Um, and we've continued to invest heavily in our managerial resources. So we know we've also, when you say more permanent changes, you know, we've, for example, now hired a full-time value creation team who've spent all their time, you know, in the companies and helping them perform more efficiently. So your most recent fund closed at $3.4 billion in 2020. And given the uncertainty of economic conditions in Europe and North America, how much pressure was there and is there to manage and create value for investors? Oh, there's always huge pressure, right? I mean, that's ultimately what they care about, right? I mean, they care about returns. I mean, at the end of the day, you know, also when PE gets a lot of criticism from the press about various things, you know, compensation or restructurings and so on and so forth, they have to understand that, you know, we really do live fund to fund. You have a bad fund, your company could be done. And, uh, you know, the, you know, our investors aren't very sentimental people because, you know, again, they're not private individuals investing there or family offices. They're big institutional investors, pension funds, and they have consultants who do benchmarking and research and due diligence into our, our, our investments and benchmark them against our peer group. So, yeah, look, there's a lot of pressure to, to create value. Absolutely. I think increasingly our investors are also focused on ESG you know, which is making sure you're environmentally uh, conscious and, and doing what you can in your businesses to be eco-friendly, to take social issues into account, go for diversity and inclusion and have best governance practices. So ESG is also very high on their agenda, but if it doesn't come with good returns, then, you know, they're not going to invest in you. So, you know, you have to have the good returns and you know, if you only have good returns, and you were terrible on ESG, they probably wouldn't invest in you either. But, you know, I think you got to have really good returns and really be making an effort to continue to improve on ESG and get better and better at it. And, you know, diversity and inclusion is a big topic right now. You know, there's a, a lot of our LPs and also us as partners in these firms want to be more diverse. We want more women. We want more anyone, men and women of ethnically diverse backgrounds more geographic backgrounds, you know, not just, you know, in, you know, white males who kind of grew up inside the M25 and, you know, went to elite schools and then, you know, went to Oxbridge or in the US, you know, the Ivy League. So, so no, you know, there's definitely a lot of pressure to, to diversify by, by gender, ethnicity, socioeconomic background. And that's important. I think it'll make us better decision makers over time too, as we have more diverse and broad views around the table, especially as those of us who are like, I'm in my early fifties now, you know, as those of us getting older, you know, we're making decisions, you know, getting older, it's, gonna, it's important to have more perspectives that are different than the world that we grew up in. Yeah. That's interesting. You mentioned Searchlight Capital has a flexible approach to investing. So when you enter a new sector or a new industry, how do you maximize the likelihood of a successful exit? Well, look, I think it's, we tend to, you know, we really focus on recurring revenue companies at Searchlight, you know, that takes us into some of the sectors you referenced earlier, telecom, media communications, unregulated financial services, business services, payments. That's a big thing for us, you know, recurring or highly reoccurring revenue streams, cash generation, 
sectors which have underlying growth because we do believe in that. I mean, we're not, you know, we're not looking to not investing in ultra high growth VC type sectors, but we're looking for some growth in our sectors. And often if you marry those qualities and, you know, the exit kind of should take care of itself. You're in your sector with some growth, you've got a recurring revenue business. You have a, you went into it with a clear agenda for some value creation and hopefully you're, you're producing, you're coming out with a better business. There should usually be an exit there, but we do have one of our key criteria. Anytime we go into a deal is, hey, you know, who are the potential buyers? You know, how realistic is that this company is going to be an IPO, you know, given its geography, its size. And even if we do an IPO, you know, we could be in it for another 18 to 24 months until we can completely sell down our stake, you know, cause that takes a long time sometimes. Alternatively, are there trade buyers who would be very synergistic and could buy the business with big synergy? So we do take that into account in all of our deals, but we're not, we would never buy something where we didn't like the underlying company just because we felt there was a good flip to a buyer around the corner because, you know, that's not our mindset. We feel like we, every business we buy, we really have to believe in it that, you know, we like the underlying business. It has some of these criteria that I mentioned and also uh, that there's a clear value creation plan in place. So, you know, I would say those things take priority. That's really interesting. So to wrap things off then, do you think, or what advice do you have to uh, university students uh, looking to pursue a career in private equity? Well, look, I think the first thing I would say is make sure you really are like private equity for the right reasons. You know, I think it's very hard when I look back as a student to really understand what a job is really like. You know, if you're reading about it or you're hearing about it, it's, you know, and you, it's natural. You have your own, you develop your own ideas, your own imagination. Oh, what it would be like to sit in that seat. So I really think it's important to gather as much information as you can of what the job is really like, you know, either talking to people in it or getting internships. And even if it's not an internship at KKR, even if it's a regional fund, at least they're doing the thing that you're interested in. Because I really believe that ultimately to be successful in private equity or in any sector or job, it has to, it has to suit you. You know, you have to, has to suit your skills and you have to be in it, into it. You know, your heart has to be in it. If uh, you can't do a job, if you don't have some innate interest in it, or if your heart's not in it and you know, you're not as motivated as others are because these are competitive industries and you need highly skilled capabilities and passion to really succeed. So sounds kind of obvious, but I see so many young people often choosing careers early on because of all sorts of reasons without really investigating whether it really suits their skill set and what they're passionate about. So I think cultivating a sense of self-awareness is really important, you know, and the only way you cultivate a sense of self-awareness, in my opinion, is through experience. And that means doing as much as you can uh, while you're a student to really look at different sectors, different jobs, and really entail what they are or what they, what they're all about, you know, sounds obvious, but it's actually really hard to do well. It's really hard to do well, but I think it's time very well invested. That's for some really good advice. Uh, I guess building on from that, what do you know today that you wish you knew when you were a student? Yeah, look, I think, I think that's also an important question, you know, cause I think as students, we often, I'd say I'd highlight three things, you know, I think as students, especially if we're at LSE or at Harvard Business School, you know, we're generally go into it as highly analytical people. And, you know, we have good math skills, we have good problem solving skills. And, you know, the whole university experience is really built around enhancing 
those analytical and problem-solving skills and communication skills, right? Really building on those, making those better, making those sharper. And, you know, my, my, my observation has been that actually those are obviously very, very important. But the problem with them is often you think about why things won't work. You know, I remember at Harvard Business School, we would sit around and we'd do these cases and everyone would have lots of ideas why something doesn't work or how it could do better. I think sometimes the real challenge is to say, why could something work and how could we make it work? You know, I think that's sort of like one of those, it's a slightly different mindset, but I think ultimately the people who really, you know, break through beyond just, you know, doing the first set of good analytical work, take that second step too, which is, wow, okay which one really can work and why, and how do we make it work? Because it's easy to criticize things and, 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 and figure out ways for things to not work. The second thing I would say is, you know, we're, we're all such rational decision makers and we learn all these rational decision-making tools. We get into the real world and we actually have to convince people to do things that we'd like them to do. You know, whether it's you're a junior person at a private equity firm and you're trying to convince someone to do something, or more importantly, you're trying to convince someone in the company to do what you'd like to do, or you're trying to recruit someone. So I feel like the other big thing is really to focus on your communication skills, because, you know, you can be the most analytically capable person in the world, but if you're not a good communicator, if you can't convince other people to consider doing the things that you'd like them to do, you're not going to be very successful in private equity or in anything. If you think you can just show up and show them how smart you are and people will roll over and say, oh, wow, that guy's a genius. Let's just do everything he just said. Unfortunately, you know, the world doesn't work like that either because, you know, there's lots of people out there who have smart ideas and it's not so easy to convince them. So becoming a communicator and a listener who can develop empathy with other people and actually figure out a way what motivates them and then figure out a way using their motivations to convince them, maybe even using their own analyticals and bias to convince them to do something that you think is the right course of action. It's actually really hard. It takes many years to develop. But I also think, first of all, you know, as a student, doing, getting involved in other things can be really useful. I mean, these, some of these extracurricular projects or clubs that people get involved in, you know, learning to communicate, learning to convince people to do things actually can translate into business, you know? I, I got to tell you, we were talking really about some of the charitable things I do. Sure, I do them because I care about them and I have the time and money to, to support them. But more importantly, they've also made me better at my day job because I've had to learn to communicate differently to different types of people with different agendas, different brains, you know. And I think that sometimes is, you know, convincing a group of teachers at into university to maybe consider something different makes me a better communicator also with management teams. Although... Those two people have totally different ways of making decisions and different incentive structures. So I think, you know, those three things, not just thinking about what can't work and being the smartest person in the room, but also thinking about what can work and why, thinking about communication and developing empathy with people and getting them to see a reason why they might want to do something different that isn't just rooted in your own superior argumentation and analytical problem solving. Pretty two pretty core skills. And last and not least, you know, the more we get into the real world and the more we deal with people outside of, you know, different sectors, we also realize a lot of people make decisions for emotional reasons, not always for rational reasons. It's often very frustrating for, you know, people who come from the more rational analytical side of things, but that's a fact of life. And I think, you know, that goes into both the communication point 
and the analytics point is to kind of understand what are the emotions in the room? What's this person feeling on the other side when you're asking the CEO to take certain actions or, you know, whatever you ask or an investor to, you know, make a certain decision. You know, the person who could tap into all of those things, I think is going to be successful in any field and private equity could be the right field for you, or there might be other fields that going to be equally exciting. I think anyone who's a student today is going to grow up in probably what could be the most fascinating 50 years of human development, you know, across ever in terms of the innovation that's happening in every field imaginable from space travel through, you know, bioengineering, you know, cryptocurrencies through anything. So I also would say, you know, don't get too obsessed about private equity. You're going to be living in one of the most exciting times in the history of mankind. And, you know, there'll be a lot of really interesting careers out there that you probably haven't even imagined yet. And, you know, if for whatever reason, you know, private equity doesn't open its doors the way you'd like it to, don't despair because yeah, you might find other stuff that's as exciting to be a part of. That's some really great advice. And I'm sure our listeners had a lot to take away from this episode. So thank you very much, Oliver, for taking the time to speak with us today. Of course. Happy to, Salman. Best of luck to you and any of your listeners. Great. Thank you to our audience for listening uh, and stay tuned for more episodes to come. Thank you. Bye.